Good morning, you can be seated. If you are new to All Souls, we want to extend you a special welcome. We're so glad that you've come uh, to spend this morning with us. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Ethan Brown, and I'm not the pastor here, so you'll have to come back next week to hear Pastor Luke preach, uh, if this is your first time. But uh, I am a, a pastor to the University of Illinois, working with a ministry called RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. So. Uh, I'm excited to meet you, whether you're a college student or not, but if you are a college student, please let me uh, buy you lunch or coffee sometime. I look forward to getting to know you. Well, our our sermon text this morning is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, so that's uh, in the online version of our bulletin. You can also start turning there in your own Bibles if you'd like. Uh, But this is actually the second sermon in a series that I'll be preaching occasionally here at All Souls on the ascension of Jesus. And our premise in this series is that the ascension was an incredibly important historical event that really happened. Jesus physically, bodily, in time ascended to the Father. But not only is it an important event that happened in the past, it's also an important present reality that the ascension of Jesus actually impacts our lives today. So as as we turn now to Hebrews chapter 1, you'll actually notice that the word ascension doesn't show up anywhere in our passage. Uh, But I hope you'll see by the end that the glory of the ascended Jesus is all over this passage, and, and it makes quite the difference in our lives. So let's, let's turn now to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." Would you please pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we need you. I need you. We need you every hour of every day, but we need you especially now if we are to hear your word and respond in a way that would bring you glory. So we ask that you would give us everything we need for that. Give us your spirit so that we can understand these, your words, so that we could live in light of them. And I pray that this morning you would strike a straight blow with a crooked stick, that your will would be done as we consider your word together. I pray this for your glory. Amen. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. I don't know if you heard that mantra growing up. I know I did. And like any good cliché, uh, there's, there's a kernel of truth to it, right? Uh, and, and ultimately, what, what someone is trying to say when they say this cliche to someone else, they're often speaking to someone they love, and they're trying to encourage them not to let the mean words that someone else said to 
dominate or control them. You know, mommy says to little Robbie, uh, you know, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you because she doesn't want him to be dominated by the, the mean thing that little Susie said in kindergarten that morning. But once you get out of kindergarten, uh, you pretty quickly realize that this cliche is not quite true. You know, there's a difference between verbal aggression and uh, a physical assault, right? Uh, I personally would rather be insulted than uh, hit with a bat. But words have power. They have power to lead us into the truth or into falsehood. They have power to give life or to bring death. Our words have power to shame and, and harm our souls, but also to heal and to cleanse. And that's why it's really good news this morning that we hear in Hebrews 1, God speaks to us. He speaks to us. And he doesn't just say any old word, although it's amazing in and of itself that God would speak to us. He offers to us the word, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, who leads us into all truth, who sustains our lives, and who brings healing and cleansing to our guilt and our shame. So as we consider Hebrews 1 this morning, we're really going to be looking at three different truths about who Jesus Christ is as the word of God and apply those truths to our hearts and lives. So first, let's consider how Jesus, God's own son, is the final word from God, the final word to us. Hebrews 1.1 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. When we hear that, uh, even to our 21st century English modern ears, there's kind of a poetic ring about it, isn't there? But what what we can't hear, to no fault of our own, and certainly to no fault uh, to our English Bibles, is that the, the original language that this is written in, ancient Greek, actually is, is using five words that start with the Greek letter pi, which is, which is our letter P. And now you might be thinking, okay, that's a, it's a fun fact, Ethan. But, I mean, think of, like, uh, uh, that, that famous tongue twister. I'm going to see if I can get it off. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Is that right? Uh, we, we use alliteration to draw our attention to something. In the case of a tongue twister, what we're doing is we're seeing if someone will kind of goof up and, and then we'll be amused by that. But here, the, the inspired author is using alliteration not to amuse us, but to draw our attention to someone who is exalted and glorious. When we really care about something, the mundane language of everyday life doesn't quite fit, right? I mean, when, uh, when Romeo saw Juliet on the balcony, he didn't say, you're pretty, right? No, he said, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east and Juliet is the sun. You didn't know you were going to get a, a Shakespearean performance this morning. 
But sometimes we're, we're so enraptured like Romeo with something beautiful that exalted language is necessary. Everything else would be unfitting. And that's what's going on here. The author is using this exalted language to draw our eyes to someone beautiful. And it's not Juliet. It's Jesus. And the first thing we see about Jesus in this passage is that he is the final word of God to us. And as the final word, he's being contrasted with the many different ways and many different times at which God spoke, uh, revealed himself in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He revealed himself in the burning, foot, the, the burning bush. He, he spoke through, through the oral messages of the prophets. And yes, he, he spoke through the written Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. But when Jesus shows up on the scene in the fullness of time, which is New Testament language for at, at just the right time, a shift took place. Now, Jesus didn't come, as he says, to contradict or refute what God had spoken and revealed previously, but to fulfill it. And look at what it says in verse 2. We've now entered these last days. These last days is common New Testament nomenclature to referring to the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And that time period is actually described in different ways in the New Testament. It's described as a period of suffering for God's people. It's described as a period of the growth and spread of the gospel through the nations. But here, the central characteristic of these last days is they are days in which God has spoken a final word to us in his son, Jesus. Jesus is the clearest and fullest expression of the character and will of God, our Father. And when we hear something like that, we're tempted to think primarily of Jesus' words. Uh, and that, that's not wrong. When Jesus lived on the earth, he was the greatest teacher in the history of the world, and he still is today. Uh, during Bible study with RUF this past week, we were looking at one of Jesus' parables, and it's amazing how this teacher who walked the earth and spoke 2,000 years ago can still cut quick to our hearts today. His words revealed the character and will of the Father. But Jesus doesn't just do that in his words. I want you to look again at what it says in verse 3. Let's, let's read that again together. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We see here that it's not just the son's words, but his identity, his ability, his task. All of these things together, his very person perfectly reveals to us who God is what God hates, what God loves, what he's like. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is God's final word to us. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, you know, we've kind of just jumped into these opening verses of Hebrews together. You know, why, why would you begin a letter this way? Well, 
some of the original audience of this letter were being tempted to turn back to the ways and religious practices of biblical Judaism, of, of what it looked like to love and serve and follow the God of the Bible before Jesus came. And a lot of this centered around worshiping and sacrificing at the temple. But in the last of these days, as it says in our passage, Jesus has ushered in a new reality. And these people needed to be reminded that Jesus is the final word from the Father. He hasn't refuted or contradicted what's gone before, but he's ushered in something new. And now my hunch is that most of us in the room are not tempted to go back to worshiping and sacrificing animals at a temple. But we, we shouldn't believe that we don't have competing final words that are uh, trying to lay claim on us to be the, the basis of, of our lives. Because the reality, everyone is living their lives on the basis of some final word, some message of ultimate significance that tells you who God is and who you are, what the problem is in the world and what the solution is. And I think the scary thing for us, uh, many of us in this room are, are Christians. Uh, if you're not, I'm, I'm glad you're here, but many of us are. The scary thing for, for us Christians is uh, what we say sometimes is the final word. It's not always what it really is, right? I remember a few years ago, I bought a uh, vinyl record and, and on this vinyl record, uh, it was in a sheet, and, and the, the kind of sleeve ha set had Handel's Messiah printed on it. Now, whatever uh, kind of street cred I maybe had for a moment for buying a vinyl record, I've lost by telling you it was Handel's Messiah that I was purchasing. But when, when I took this record home and, and put it on my record player and dropped the needle, I, I can't even remember what played, but I know for sure it wasn't. Handles Messiah. And, and often our lives are, are just like this. Our hearts are just like this. On the outside, the, our sleeve reads, Jesus is ultimate. He is the one who tells me who God is and who I am. But when we drop the needle, a different song plays. When we experience suffering or temptation or even something seemingly good like unexpected praise, a different song, when, when you're pulled over by a police officer on the morning that you're going to preach, sometimes a different song can play. And, and we need to ask ourselves, what actually is the final word, that message of ultimate significance that's forming you most today? Perhaps it's the word of an authority figure in your life who once told you that you'll never be enough. Perhaps it's the word of many in our culture who would have you believe that it's your right to be as happy as you can possibly be in the way that you define it, no matter the cost. Perhaps it's the word of Satan, the accuser who says that God could never forgive you for, for that, whatever that thing is in your past that still plagues you. Perhaps it's the word of your own desires that, if we're honest, would say something like, I love to sin, God loves to forgive. It's a happy arrangement. 
There are many potential final words that might define us, but what Hebrews 1 is telling us is that only Jesus Christ, the final word of the Father, brings us into all truth. Only in him can we come to know who God really is and who we really are and what it means to flourish in a relationship with the God who created us and loves us, even though we often run from him and reject him and spit in his face. That's what the incarnation of God the Son in Jesus Christ tells us most clearly about who God is and who we are. But Jesus isn't just the final word to us, as good news as that is. He's also the sustaining word above us. And that's our second thing we want to notice this morning. So look again at what it says at the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. We're seeing here that Jesus is the one through whom God created the whole world. And he's the one who upholds the universe by his power. When we consider Jesus as the final word, we were really thinking in many respects about the fact that he fulfills perfectly and finally the office of a prophet. In the Old Testament, prophets were people who revealed God's character and will to his people. And here, as we turn to this idea of Jesus as the sustaining word, we're seeing Jesus as the ultimate king, the one who rules over creation by the words of his mouth and even sustains all creation by his power. And Jesus, who's ascended into heaven, still speaks to his people. He's still the great prophet. When we read his words and hear them preached, he's speaking to us today. But he's also still the great king, even now, ruling over all creation, even when everything that we look at in the world might seem to suggest otherwise. Now, historically, there is one thing that was very characteristic of kings and kingdoms uh, throughout the history of human society, and, and that is that they could rule by kind of the, the technical terminology is verbal fiat. And on the ground level, what that means is what they said went. And this kingly power that has often been operative in human society is really just a dim reflection of the true kingly power of Jesus, because his kingdom knows no bounds. The Bible teaches that God created all things from nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. It also teaches that God sustains all things by the power of his words. And here we see that although the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all active in creation and in saving us from our sins and sustaining all things, that it's especially through the Son, the agency or activity of God the Son, Jesus Christ, that all things are being held together. Now, uh, I'm going to borrow a phrase from Pastor Luke. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, God often uses secondary causes and secondary means. Uh, believing that Jesus sustains all things is not a rejection of science or the laws of nature. It's actually the reason that we can study God's world and, and come to know anything about it. But what we need to realize is that if Jesus stopped sustaining the universe for a moment, it would cease to exist. 
He is the one who maintains the orbit of planets and oversees the death of stars. He's the one who is familiar with the unknown creatures on the ocean floor. He's the one who is involved with the birth of cattle on a thousand hills. He's the king of the whole creation. And he directs all things to his purposes. And I hope as you hear that, that that sounds glorious to you. Ah, that it humbles you, that it draws your heart to worship such a great king. But there's a chance, and I know this because I've been there, there's a chance that it sounds kind of like distant, abstract theology that doesn't really kind of uh, make a connection with us in our day-to-day lives, but that couldn't be further from the truth. When we talk about Jesus sustaining all things, we can Keep it on the the macro or the cosmic scale, but the reality is that means that Jesus upholds you, that he's near to you. And and if that's true, then then we need to be reminded that forgetting that is, is putting us in a dangerous position. And it can lead either to kind of a self indulgent lifestyle or it can lead us to despair. You know, there, there were a couple times in Israel's history when they lived without a king in the land. Uh, back during the time of the judges, this is a, a refrain in the book of Judges, there was no king in the land and, and everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they pleased. They sought their own pleasure. But later on in Israel's history, they, they were brought into exile. And yet again, at least it, it appeared there was no king in the land, not, not a king who descended from David, as God promised. And, and at that time, God's people were tempted to despair, to forgetting the promises of God, to living as if their current circumstances were ultimate. Now, if you're seeking your own pleasure today, I encourage you to remember that the sustaining word, Jesus Christ, can take away your breath at a moment. He's that powerful. But if you're despairing today, if you're struggling to remember the promises of God, I encourage you to remember the promises of the sustaining word. He's a mighty king, but he's also a good king. And I think Hebrews 1 is is calling us to live humbly and submissively and obediently to this king, but also joyfully, knowing that he's near to us and sustaining us. That even the, the breath in our lungs is from him, that our faith, that the breath of our souls is from him, and he sustains it. Now, one of the reasons we ought to live humbly and joyfully before Jesus is certainly that he's God's final word to us, and that he's the sustaining word, the king who rules over us. But finally, let's consider now that he is also a priest who is the cleansing word of God for us. Read a the end of verse 3 and 4 with me. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Because of our sin, human beings naturally are without the knowledge of God that leads to eternal life. So God sent us a prophet, someone to show us who he is and his will for our lives. 
because of our sin, we don't just have internal problems, but external problems. We're actually under the tyranny, in a sense, of, of the devil. So God sent a king, a conqueror, to, to win us back to him. And, and finally, because of our sin, we, we don't just have a knowledge problem and, and a tyranny problem. We have a guilt problem. We stand guilty before a holy God. So God sent us a priest. And it's amazing that God has met all of our needs in this one man, Jesus Christ. The language of purification for sins uh, might sound kind of unfamiliar to our modern ears. If you've grown up in the church, you've maybe heard this sort of thing before, but you know, you're not seeing it becoming a meme on uh, TikTok, are you? But for the early readers of this book, as soon as they heard this language, it immediately would have brought to their minds this idea of a priest. And, and what does a priest do? They do a lot of things, but most centrally, priests offer sacrifices to God on behalf of God's people to make purification for sins. And when we hear that, what we need to ask ourselves is, do you, do I, feel the need for purification today? Now, that, that's a different question than, do you think you should feel the need for purification today? I think many of us would, would say yes to that, but do you truly feel this need? None of us can ever escape the real need for purification, for cleansing, but I think few societies in the history of the world have been as able and competent and adept at 20, as 21st century America in ignoring or suppressing the feeling that we need purification. The word for purification in our passage is the Greek word katharismos, which might be translated catharsis. You can kind of hear the similarity between those words there. And if you remember back to your high school English class, you might remember that that word is often used in connection with ancient Greek tragedies, plays that were written and intended so that the, those watching the play would be brought into this emotional experience that brought a kind of cleansing or purification or catharsis. So for ancient Greek tragedians, purification was found in a subjective emotional experience. Now there are other people in, in the ancient world who located purification in something outside of themselves. They would perform some kind of ritual. They would kill an animal pour some wine on the ground, uh, go on, on a pilgrimage to a holy site, and regardless of how they felt or how they lived the rest of the time, the, performing this act brought them a kind of purity or cleansing with the gods. Now, whether ancient peoples, peoples of the past, sought cleansing externally or internally, almost everyone has been haunted by this felt need for purity. And even though we don't use the same systems they use, we shouldn't be deceived into thinking that we don't have systems of our own. Because like the two examples we just mentioned, we do have internal and external ways of, of dealing with our felt need for cleansing. But unlike many of these peoples, it's not so much an intentional and conscious way of, of bringing that cleansing as it is 
uh, mechanisms for not thinking about it, for ignoring it, for suppressing it. So how do we do this? I mean, we, we numb ourselves with comforts like porn or food or alcohol. We distract ourselves with entertainments like Netflix and video games. We attempt to dismiss our need for purification by comparing ourselves to the people around us who very obviously have a greater need to be cleansed than we do. We seek to find validation online by uh, controlling the image we're presenting to the world, or we seek to find it in person by controlling the people around us. But no matter how good we are at these different mechanisms of avoiding our need for cleansing, we can't quite get away. We're, we're kind of on this hamster wheel. We're running and running and running, or, or maybe you could think of it as a, as a treadmill, but we're not actually creating any distance between ourselves and this need. So sooner or later, we run out of steam and we're confronted by this brutal truth. For some of us, it's just a, a haunting sense of, of needing to be clean, needing to be purified. For those of us that have read the scriptures, we hear specifically that it's because we're guilty before a holy God, that we need someone to make payment for our sins. So where do we, where do we turn? Whether you're a Christian this morning or exploring the claims of the Bible, where are we to turn? I want you to remember that these early believers were being tempted to turn back to the practices of Judaism. Now, the, the Old Testament order was designed by God. It was good, but it was temporary. It, it was a pattern that was going to be fulfilled in Christ who, who truly secures for us the cleansing that we need. But if, if even the system that God designed to point us to Jesus isn't actually able to accomplish that cleansing, what hope do we have for all of our man-made mechanisms of, of trying to be made right with God or accomplish this cleansing that we know we need? Only Jesus, the word of God who has made flesh for us, can truly purify us. In his death, he took on our impurity and offers to us, all those of us that trust in him, the life that he deserves because of his purity. The catharsis that Jesus offers is not like the ancient Greek tragedies because it's true of you if you trust in Jesus regardless of how you feel. But it's also not like other ancient pagan rituals because it actually changes you from the inside out. Jesus objectively secures a right standing between us and God the Father, the perfect judge, but he also changes us over time from the inside out to look more and more like him. So I want to close now just with this final thought. I, I know that many of you in this room agree with what has been said this morning, and I, I praise God for that. But some of us are, are still struggling to really know that God has made us clean. Or even if we know it, we're struggling to, to feel clean, purified, accepted, beloved before this holy God. So if that's true for you, I want you to look one more time at verse 3. After making purification for sins, he 
sat down. He sat down on a throne because he's the king. Uh, We actually talked about that a good amount in, in the last sermon in this series. But he also sat down for another reason. In the Old Testament, priests never sat down in the temple. They had sacrifices to offer to God day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and they never sat down. But Jesus sat down. He sat down because on the cross, he fully paid the debt of all God's people. He sat down after he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven as proof to you today that God accepts you and delights in you, not because of your own past or present or future, but because of Jesus Christ. The ascended Jesus is speaking to us today. He's God's final word to us. He's sustaining us today. He's the king who rules over us, and he's the priest who offers us cleansing today. I urge you, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, to trust in him and worship him. He can truly meet all of your needs. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you did speak long ago at many times and in many ways to our fathers. We thank you even more that you have spoken and still speak to us today in your son, Jesus. God, we ask that you give us ears to listen. We know that our words have power, but your word has the power to cleanse us to sustain us, to lead us into all truth. Oh, please be working even as we go from here. I ask that none of us would leave here unchanged, but that we would respond to this particular word from you this morning and respond every day to the word made flesh, our Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.